Morning, church. Can be seated um, for our scripture reading today. It's going to be from Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Go ahead and uh, receive this or follow along. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, church, yeah. Um, good morning. My name is Aaron Sweeney. I am one of the elders here at Church in the Square, um, and I am grateful to be here with y'all today. Um, I'm grateful to be walking through God's Word. Um, today we continue in the Sermon on the Mount series, but begin in a new movement in Jesus' sermon as we ch- start chapter 6. Um, to help put it into context, let's remind ourselves of what chapter 5 of Matthew included. Remember, uh, Sermon on the Mount series is chapter 5 of Matthew 6 and 7, and so we finished chapter 5 last week. A quick overlook of that was in the beginning of chapter 5, if you remember, was uh, what is known as the Beatitudes. Um, and that Jesus was describing his people, um, us, the Christian, as we are. Okay? He was describing us as we are, what is intrinsic to our being. Following that, we had um, a message in the um, uh, section on salt and light. In verses 13 to 16, Jesus describing his people's reaction there to the world and also the world's reaction to his people. And then we followed that with uh, uh, multiple sections. Remember, we have anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, etc. And in those, Jesus was engaging with his people's relationship, with our relationship with the law of God and how that played out, played out okay? And one thing to note In chapter um, 5, verses 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Looking at this verse specifically, because this this intros a sort of communicative structure of sorts um, that Jesus uses. He, He contrasts the scribes and Pharisees with those who will enter the kingdom of heaven, or his people, the Christian. And so, in chapter 5, Jesus contrasts the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes with his teaching that should govern the life of the Christian. Here in chapter 6, Jesus looks into what right teaching and learning ought to naturally produce. That is practical living, our piety, our every action, thought, and motivation being sourced from who he is, Jesus. So he continues that contrast as well as he continues through chapter 6. And so we're going to challenge a lot of what we do by critiquing the why, asking why. Why do we do it? That way we can't just sit and though we have a list of things to know how to act, here we do it. But now it comes a little closer to home. And so um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who's been, I know, mentioned before, so you all are somewhat familiar. Um, he's a Welsh preacher of old and has a very pointed acknowledgement for chapter 6 as a whole that I found really insightful, Um, I mean, pretty challenging, but also very hopeful. And so um, I just wanted to share that because I think it really sets up well, gives an overview um, 
from someone that has come before us in looking at chapter six. And also, um, as you'll see in the contents of it, leads appropriately into um, prayer um, before we get into this. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book from, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, there is, no <clears throat> there is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. But thank God for it. The Christian should always be anxious to know himself. No other man truly wants to know himself. The natural man thinks he knows himself and thereby reveals his basic trouble. He evades self-examination because to know oneself is ultimately the most painful piece of knowledge that a man can ever acquire. And here is a chapter that brings us face to face with ourselves and enables us to see ourselves exactly as we are. But I repeat, thank God for it. Because it is only the man who has truly seen himself for what he is, who is likely to fly to Christ and to seek to be filled with the Spirit of God, who alone can burn out of him the vestiges of self and everything that tends to mar his Christian life and living. So with that, let's, let's pray and ask God to do just that. Lord, um, every time we come to your word in whatever setting it is, um, something uh, beautiful is happening. Um, your grace is being experienced and the fact that we have access to that. And so uniquely we are here today as we gather corporately as the body and um, we ask that you would ready our hearts and minds for whatever you would have us learn and know of who you are, Lord, and that we would get a clear picture and understanding of who you are. And in turn that we'd see ourselves more rightly, Lord. I ask that you would take whatever words from my mouth and translate them appropriately for your good and for your glory in your name. Amen. So in chapter uh, 6 of Matthew, verse 1, we'll start there. Beware, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus begins this movement with an exhortation to his people. In other words, he's urging his people to beware or look out for how they practice their righteousness. And this exhortation is kind of setting up the next few weeks. As today we talk about um, giving to those in need, but also we'll look at prayer and fasting. And so um, he's urging us to beware or look out for how we practice righteousness. The righteousness that in some respects he has just spent chapter five, teaching us about, teaching the people about, the disciples in that case, in relation to the law. And so we need to beware of practicing it before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And uh, some of y'all who have maybe really good memories, remember back to chapter five, verse 16, uh, maybe that comes to mind. It reads, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And at a quick glance, this seems like a contradiction on the surface. In 5.16, it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And here in chapter 6, verse 1, it's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And so there's a tension here. And the tension here is is verbal, it's in the verbal aspect of it. And that's where the contradiction lies on the surface. We're seeing this in written form. 
But remember, Jesus was preaching these words verbally. That's where the contradiction can be seen. The key here is realizing that Jesus is speaking against different sins, though. So I want to quickly lean on the tension so we can make sure we have an understanding. And so Stott points out, John Stott, um, scholar, um, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, says that it is our human cowardice in chapter five, six, uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 16, which made Jesus say, let your light shine before men. And our human vanity in chapter 6, verse 1 that we're looking at today, which made Jesus tell us to beware of practicing our piety before men. So the contradiction there is eliminated. Um, however, I do want to take a, a moment and talk about perceived contradictions in, in, in the scriptures, okay? Because a couple of these have come up, and I think at a quick glance sometimes we can see that. And to be honest about, uh, I just want to be honest about what can happen in that space. How do we perceive those? How do we enter into those spaces? We can probably think about how, um, it might be easy for us to think at least, how someone outside the church, maybe that's someone we know that has a negative view of Christianity, um, or if we don't, see, don't know someone like that, maybe we've seen that in the social sphere somewhere. Um, we have an idea in our minds how they might engage with something that looks like a contradiction on the surface. Um, but for today, let's look within, within the church. Rather, let's be introspective so as to acknowledge how the Lord can shape us, his body. And so when we face what might be perceived initially as contradiction in the scriptures, what is our response? So when we, when we say the verse today and look back to another verse, what is our response in that initially? What's our reaction to that? Some of us, maybe we've gone through that already and we feel safe in it. For those of you who uh, didn't grow up in a culturally, Christ, a culturally Christian context, you might just point it out. There's not much to that. Or maybe you don't point it out because you're like, I don't really want to start another conversation right now. I'm not, that's not kind of my thing. It's not what I bring to the group. But for those of us who grew up in a culturally Christian context, and I know many of us here have, um, contradiction can sometimes live under the rug where we or others have thrown them so as to not engage with them, right? And so it's not, it's not an uncommon experience that is shared where if something looked like contradiction in the Bible, that, we, that truth and belief were thrown into the gap. Well, as I just said, the contradiction and likely the passages that are being referenced is thrown under the rug. And so to be, to be walked over metaphorically a million times, but to stay out of sight so as to not disrupt anything. And so I put air quotes around truth and belief because it's really fear that, that's masked those terms that sound good and Christian in those moments. We move on to the next topic because if we're honest, that, that does kind of look like a contradiction. Something does kind of look like a contradiction or if we hear someone bring something up, Ooh, I don't really know if to do that. Um, if I can leave that room, that would be wise. I don't really want to deal with this. <laughs> and I have no idea what to do with it, right? For, for some, it's the fear in that of not being seen as having all the knowledge and answers to God's word. I would be put in that category. That would be my, my flaw. And so for others of us, the idea of a contradiction being acknowledged and true means we go down the logical path that what we believe is a lie and that can be intense. And so we don't even want to entertain the implications that can come from that. Now, church in the square, rest assured, it's good for us to believe and trust that the scriptures don't contradict themselves. Make sure to say that. Maybe literally, as we saw in Matthew 5, 16 here in 6, 1, like on the surface, but not substantively. But let's acknowledge when we don't know our way through a perceived contradiction. Let's be willing to say, I trust that isn't a contradiction, but I don't know how to explain it, 
explain why at this moment. Because the fear that drives the reaction of the person outside the church to weaponize a perceived contradiction is the same fear that has us throwing it under the rug and being passive. Let's look into God's word individually, yes, but also within our community. If we don't have that last part, within our community, it can seem like a daunting thing to just say, just look at your Bible more. <laughs> Let's pressure test what we have here. Not because we think we'll find a crack, but if you think that, fine. But because God, he isn't afraid to have his word pressure tested or his son, Jesus, pressure tested. Sometimes we can forget that. In our own fear, we can kind of project that onto the Father. But the reality is he's not afraid of that. And the work to investigate his word and use other resources at our fingertips, in fact, in that act, he sanctifies us and grows our belief and trust in him. Don't get me wrong, it's hard. It's a lot. I'm not saying we're going to always have uh, the answers. In fact, to be honest with you, I have... I don't like bringing this up because it feels weird, but I do have a master's in this book, and I can tell you I feel less capable of answering questions after that um, than more. And so I'm reminded in chapter 17 of John, as Jesus is praying to God, the Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So we see tensions, not contradictions. Maybe it seems like semantics, but tensions, tensions to be entered into, something we can enter into that space, and that's where the real trust and belief is present. True trust and belief is present when we're accepting our finiteness. We're acknowledging we aren't God, and in God's grace, he says, come and know me. You don't have to have all the answers right. Come. And so we'll look back for, at verse 1 again. This reminder says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And the word righteousness there in the beginning, in its Greek form, it's pronounced dikeosune. And this is the same word that Jesus uses back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 6, and also verse 20 except the emphasis is different. I think it's worth bringing it up here. In chapter five, the emphasis is related to kindness, purity, honesty, and love, what some might call a moral righteousness. And in chapter six, the emphasis is on practice. Today, we look at the practice of helping those in need. The weeks to come, we will look at the practice of prayer as well as fasting. And so some translations show this emphasis more explicitly than others. Uh, one, uh, the, NR, the NRSV um, reads, beware of practicing your piety before others. I think it's helpful to look at this because piety is, is devoutness is another way I think of understanding it. I, and I actually appreciate, um, not that I don't appreciate it normally, I appreciate uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defined it as, I was just curious to see what, like, what, what, a, what is the definition of it? Uh, in a broad sense. And it said, fidelity to natural obligations. And it gave parents as an example here. Um, but I found this helpful to unpack the emphasis here in verse 1. Because in chapter 5, Jesus communicated who we are intrinsically, remember? He described us as we are, as an active thing. And so piety is the natural outworking 
of that intrinsic identity and being and where we get into this practice, okay? Now, in our modern context, piety is often broken up into like internal piety and external. And the one thing I think that's worth noting is I, I, I'd argue that it's somewhat of a false dichotomy for the Christian because this idea that the idea that the internal aspect of the Christian or the heart and soul would be separate from the external piece of the Christian or practice and works, the outpouring of that, is fine uh, in communication and to help conceptualize, but, but in function, they ought to be inseparable. If indeed the internal reality is true, then the external is a natural act. And this is also where the tension, as we've, I think, talked about previously in the Sermon on the Mount, is where the tension of the kingdom being already but not fully experienced, not fully here, is present. Because in our brokenness on this earth, one can function with one external piety and not the internal, or the internal and not the external. But in the new kingdom, that won't be something that's possible. But even in the now, as we've mentioned previously, there is hope, as we've mentioned previously in this series, that we can experience both in tandem as the Lord intended. The Sermon on the Mount broadly engages with this exact tension because Jesus explains who we are internally and moves into how that naturally shows itself in various ways. Jesus shows us this today through how we give to those in need. So we look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Where it says, give to the needy, uh, the Greek word, I've got a few of these today, so sorry to overload you the Greek words, but it's very fascinating and I think it's worth it. Uh, so where it says, give to the needy, the Greek word used there is elee musune and can be, it's, it's translated also as a deed of mercy or pity. So the key here is, like this, this can often be financial, and I think even as, so, so yeah, it can often be financial, but it's not limited to that function. So I think that's why there's a key there to realize that this can be time, this can be energy, this can be our homes, space, this can be uh, emotions, whatever is something that can be given to those in need. Anything that can be given to those in need, and I want to emphasize that this is saying when you give help to those in need. The emphasis, I think, is needed because often give, in this context, is easily thought of as a financial situation, and that's probably the majority of the, understand, or majority of the impact that it had is in that space, in this, in this text, but it is referencing to any kind of help for those in need. Though that's part of it, there are many other ways to help folks in need, obviously, that God, that God is warning us about and how to act in all of those as we get through the text today. And if you notice, too, right in the beginning of that, of verse 2, it says when. So when we give to the needy, not, not if. So even up front here, there's just this assumed reality of the Christian. You will be giving to the needy. So when that happens, so it begs the question right away, are we doing that? And, and when we do so, Jesus warns us, again, in contrast with the scribes and Pharisees, but it reads here, hypocrites. That's who he's referring to, though, and he's been consistent in that. He warns us to sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. 
So don't have a band follow you around to make a show of the help that you're extending. And I know that seems really outlandish. In fact, some scholarship points to there being historical precedent for this. To be literal, as religious elites at times would have some sort of pomp and circumstance to announce some sort of piety. Others also say this really isn't literal what, he's, what Jesus is getting at. In either case, the spirit of what Jesus is getting at here is consistent. The help you give should not be a spectacle. Because if you're making it a spectacle, then you are like the hypocrites, looking to be praised by others. And here, uh, here we go again. The Greek word for hypocrites here is hypocrites, and it, it had more variety in its meaning than we have in our modern English understanding of hypocrite. It can be translated here as performers, show-offs, or one who plays a part on a stage. And Eugene Peterson, who is a pastor and scholar uh, known for his pretty nuanced understanding of the biblical languages, had this in mind in his Bible translation message. And I think it's very pointed and helpful given the understanding of what that word hypocrites can mean. And so this is... His translation, it reads, when you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them. Treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage. Acting compassionate, as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. It's like Eugene did not play. Um, <laughs> spectacle, praised by others, playing to the crowds. This kind of giving that the hypocrites do, and that Jesus warns us not to, is a giving that seeks attention. It seeks applause, it seeks adulation, acknowledgement, approval. The five A's of hypocritical living. No, I'm just kidding, that was uh, completely unintended, actually. <laughs> so yeah, attention, applause, adulation, acknowledgement, approval, that's what it's seeking out. Think about I think a quick, easy example that's right around us, but maybe none of us actually can be associated with it. Maybe we are. I just don't know everyone in here. But the building's named after people, right? Not, not, no shade being thrown on anyone who has that. Um, but that's probably a pretty easy example to think about. Wow, that's, that's a pretty large way to know that you've given money by putting your name on stuff. So we think of that. That might not be something that we can really, like I said, associate ourselves with as much, but we see it, right? whether it's a building that has all the donors listed on a plaque or it's the name actually, you know, if you're in that level, it's just completely named after you. And, these, and this is where Jesus gets down into the heart of giving, though, in this, in this context. He's, he's emphasizing the motive that leads to this kind of help one gives to one in need. God cares about our motives. He cares about our motives. I think that's helpful to remember as we walk through life in 2023, especially in the context of Chicago. Not only are we probably, everyone's probably busy, but living in this place that has a lot of things that can fill your mind, distract you, keep you busy when you're not actually busy. And so it can be hard to really want to get down into what our motives actually are because that takes space. <laughs> that takes that takes the kids going to bed at the right time at night so you have 30 minutes to think. It takes acknowledging that 
it's likely that our motives aren't all in line. So why, why do we do what we do? If we do it for the approval of others, then Jesus says we're, then Jesus says we've received their reward. The reward for helping in that way is human praise and nothing else. And Peterson, as I was just quoting um, from the message, Eugene, he finishes off that text, that translation, his paraphrase, uh, with, they get applause, true, but that's all they get. Just straight to the point, bro. That immediate momentary applause, if we're honest though, it's really, it's kind of addicting, right? It feels nice. I mean, I think of how, how much of a, a dopamine hit we get just from likes on an IG photo, or if we're gonna make it very current, how nice is it to have your first post on threads get liked by folks? Right, starting off, starting off real strong means the future's bright. Um, and if we, if we crave that, and that's not helping someone in need or showing any kind of humility, how much more do we crave the applause for helping those in need? And maybe at one point in certain societies, in honor societies, this wouldn't really be appealing, but I think having our sacrifice and our humility celebrated, especially uniquely as Christians, with density to those terms, feels good, if we're being honest at times. We live in a t- and we also live in a time where humility is actually kind of a trendy thing, interestingly enough. And hu- humility, I should say. Generally speaking, people see humility, or at least the idea of it, kind of as a noble thing at this point. But then begs the question, if humility is trendy, is it really humility? The act of Jesus wasn't something that trended on the cross. And so I think it's worth thinking about. So if someone you know, for example, in, in this giving to those in the needy, if someone you know is in a dire financial position, then, then praise God that you get to help them, if you get to help them. But then let's take the next step. If in five years later, they become a person who you don't get along with for whatever reason, that relationship's kind of fractured. There's really been no understanding of why though, and so there's some anger there. Don't cleverly allude to that one time you helped them out. A sinful act there to instill some guilt in that individual. What that can look like is a reminder, not asking for it back, but just a reminder. And don't, don't vent to someone else about it, how you helped them out as a way of coping to make yourself feel better about the broken relationship that you likely had a hand in. So that's one example, just obviously, and it's in regards to finance, finances, um, but one I don't think is unrealistic. And you take the previous example, and instead of giving financial help, maybe you give time, right? Some mental and emotional capacity to a person, whether that's a week, throughout a week, whether that's throughout years, It feels really nice to remind folks of all that giving you did when that relationship is in the trash. You kind of feel taken advantage of. Like I didn't actually expend all of that for this to happen. It was leading to something, right? Feels good. Feels good to be seen as the one who did good to ensure that the other person is seen somewhat in a darker light. And honestly, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, because this has been me. Offering help at times, conscious or subconsciously, as an investment than as an act of selfless love and care. And in the moment, 
you don't really notice it until later when stuff happens. You start thinking certain thoughts. Begs the question, what was that help? What was that mental space? What was that emotion? What was that home space that you gave that person? What was it for? What was it motivated by? And don't get me wrong, this, this is hard. And it's hard if we're willing to stop and see what our motives are. If we're not willing to see and look at what our motives are, ignorance is bliss. But slowing down to see what our motives are can be a beautiful thing and a confronting thing because sin is clever and enticing. Moving on, we have verse 3, the first part of verse 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Hypocrisy can be deliberate or subtle. Verse 2, we see the more deliberate hypocrisy, and in verse 3 here, we see the more subtle example. Jesus isn't being literal here, the idea of not letting your left hand know what the other hand is doing. The idea of being presented here is that of being self-conscious. Even if we aren't looking for applause from others, we can crave our own applause. So subtle is the sinfulness of the heart, John Stott writes, that it is possible to take deliberate steps to keep your giving secret from men while simultaneously, and then here's the kicker, dwelling on it in our own minds in a spirit of self-congratulation. This is where it hits really home. Some of y'all up till now are like, I don't talk about my giving to people, I'm fine. But now it's saying, now you're reminded of, how do I make myself feel? How does this feel? How do I pat myself on the back? Jesus here is calling us to give in a holy way. Holy giving. This idea of holy giving being subconscious or not self-conscious. A natural overflowing of the heart. Again, become what you already are. As we kind of hit on in chapter 5, act as you already are capable of acting. It's already present within us. Act in that. Sam Storms, author and scholar uses an analogy of being a mirror or a sponge. Are we reflecting the glory of Jesus so that he is on display, or are we absorbing the glory for ourselves? Again, the trendiness of humility has an allure because it doesn't really ask of us like true humility does. Stott again says, pointedly, he leans into this kind of idea, coincidentally, and he says, altruism has been displaced by a distorted egotism. He continues on saying that Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulation. And self-forgetfulness, it's not to be conflated with carelessness. Instead, it should, be, it should emphasize that there is no need to dwell on the helpful act we offer to someone in need. There's no need to. In fact, a holy act of help is an act that has us looking eagerly for the next chance to help. Because when acts of righteousness have the right motive and the right disposition of the heart, then we are pure in heart and we shall see God, as it says in Matthew 5, 8. So we have holy acts of righteousness. Matthew 5, 8 helps us see we are pure in heart. That helps us see God more clearly and accurately. In other words, we see love 
because God is love. We see the one who has created us more clearly and accurately, so then we see ourselves more clearly and accurately. And in that, we experience an awe and a joy and an understanding of what we've received that cultivates humility and again cycles back to more holy acts of righteousness. And holy is the key word here. Because that begs the question of why or what is the source for your help to those in need. It's not just about the act on the surface like the scribes and the Pharisees cared about. And for, if we're honest, a lot of the times that's what it is. It's checking off a box. It's doing what we think we're supposed to do. And church, it's important to know that though we see ourselves in the Pharisees and scribes, they were also very real historical people. Specifically, they were religious elites. They were within the church. Sometimes I think when we have this like juxtaposition of Jesus and then the Pharisees, we place ourselves like in Jesus and these are outside the church. Well, these were in some religious elites were literally like physically within the church. It, it isn't also those outside the body of believers we are to be different from, in other words, but also there are likely those within the body or that suppose they are within the body that we should be different from. And on this dynamic, I'm getting multiple quotes from Stott because he's money today. Um, on this dynamic, John Stott says very pointedly that Christians are not to conform to the world is a familiar concept of the New Testament. But it is not so well known that Jesus also saw and foresaw the worldliness of the church itself and called his followers not to conform to the nominal church either, but rather to be a truly Christian community distinct in its life and practice from the religious establishment. An ecclesiola, or a little church in the midst of ecclesia, the larger church. The essential difference in religion as in morality is that authentic Christian righteousness is not an external manifestation only, but one of the secret things of the heart. Which Jesus, Jesus mentions in verse 4 of our text today, that we must be discreet. And the rest of verse 4 reads, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He sees in secret. It's hard not to think of the whole Santa sees, sees you sleeping and awake. When you hear that, that's the last time I'll reference Santa. Um, no, so it's a reference though. Again, things like this, he sees in secret. We can walk past it, but I think we slow down. We realize this is a reference to his omniscience, his omnipresence, his all-knowing nature and his presence everywhere, respectively. And so this is both a corrective as well as an immense comfort. The idea that he is aware of all things is definitely a source of accountability. But the comfort comes in this meaning he's near us in the midst of all things. Hardship, suffering, sadness, and so on. And he's experienced that. Jesus has experienced that. So he's not just near us, completely ignorant of the realities, but he knows what we're going through. He's with us. And this reward, the reward, there is still a reward. So the motivation for these acts Jesus is calling us to do rightly is not the reward. Instead, we're motivated by the love of Christ that was displayed for us on the cross at Calvary. We were in need and he helped to the point of death. We were in need. 
And to bring back a previous example, we were in that kind of messed up relationship and it was very much one-sided. And our sin was the only thing that we could offer. And he, Jesus, helped those in need and didn't ask for anything back. And so what is the reward then? Here we go again. Stop. Sorry, just good. Good words. He says, it is neither public nor necessarily future. It is probably the only reward which genuine love wants when making a gift to the needy, namely to see the need relieved. When through his gifts the hungry are fed, the naked clothed, the sick healed, the oppressed freed, and the lost saved, the love which prompted the gift is satisfied. Such love, which is God's own love expressed through man, brings with it its own secret joys and desires no other reward. To sum up, our Christian giving is to be neither before men, waiting for the clapping to begin, nor even before ourselves, our left hand applauding our right hand's generosity, but before God, who sees our secret heart and rewards us with the discovery that, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm reminded of Matthew 25, verse 35 to 40, that I think paints just such a beautiful picture Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was, str- I was a stranger and you welcomed me. <clears throat> I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did, you see, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The approval we seek is from our heavenly father. Yet in a beautiful way, those who claim Jesus as Lord over all already have that approval. Because as God the father looks down on his children, on us, he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus that was secured through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And church, that is such, such good news. Let's pray. Lord, um, you are such a good God. We ask you to be willing to slow down, to critique below our acts and our works, to understand what the motive is. And Lord, that we wouldn't do that on our own, in isolation, Lord, only, but that we'd also, we'd walk this out within our community, within our groups, within the body, because that, you have that for us because we're not gonna figure it out on our own. If we get to the point of realizing that we have flawed motivations, Lord, what do we do with that? Where's the encouragement coming from? Let us talk with one another. Let us challenge each other and know that it's out of care. Let us encourage like, each other when we see people helping in ways that are incredible, Lord. I know I've experienced it myself 
with people in this body. It is true help when you ask for help to move a house in like three days and people show up. That's nuts. That's you, Lord. I ask that you would just permeate our souls, that, we would, um, that you would take any fear away from the idea of excavating our hearts and looking where our motor, motives um, are coming from, Lord, and that we'd see it as more of an opportunity for you to actually help us experience who you are more deeply, Lord. Because as, as, as we've said so many times here at Church in the Square, we know that obedience leads to joy, but it also leads to other opportunities for obedience and more joy, Lord. And so, as mentioned today, I ask that you would posture us in a way that gives to the needy, gives help to the needy, doesn't ask for things in return, doesn't keep a record, doesn't look at it as a leverage, Lord, but looks at it purely as a way to see your kingdom come. In your name, amen.